if you think you're an environmental rights person, you have to be somebody who cares about racial justice, you have to be somebody who cares about gender justice, and you have to be somebody who cares about political economy because all of these things are deeply connected. Or if you're somebody who understands yourself as an immigrants' rights activist, you have to be thinking about climate, you have to be thinking about racial justice, you have to be thinking about gender justice because the systems that, and the structures that we're pushing up against require this kind of cross-cutting, intersectional um, approach. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, ACLS Fellow and Migrations Fellow, and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. For this episode, we joined forces with the hosts of Ufahamu Africa to speak with Tendai Achume, lawyer, legal scholar of international migration, and former UN Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. Tendai's work is shaping conversations around the intersecting issues of human rights, migration, racial justice, and climate justice. In our current podcast season about many kinds of crossing, we're calling this episode Crossing Racial Borders, and this is an homage to a concept Achume presents in an influential article by that same name, Racial Borders. In that piece, Achume writes about the need to understand national borders as a racial technology. That is, borders and the policing of borders leads to, quote, differential treatment and outcomes based on race with white supremacy as one important ordering principle, among others, that determines benefit or advantage. It's this kind of idea that makes Achume's work as a legal scholar resonate with researchers, activists, humanitarian workers, and students across disciplines and geographies. In this episode, you'll hear her talk about how race and colonial history are embedded in border regimes and what this means for people on the move seeking safety and stable lives. It was such a pleasure to speak with Tendai together with Ufahamu Africa co-host Dr. Rachel Beatty-Riedel, who is director of the Mario Anaudi Center for International Studies and professor of government at Cornell. We spoke during Tendai's spring 2023 visit to Cornell, and let me say it's so wonderful to get to record an episode around a table together instead of on computers thousands of miles apart. This also means that you might get to hear a little live action air conditioning or lawn mowing, just so you know that might be coming, but we hope that doesn't distract from the conversation itself. If you like this collaboration, you might want to check out our bonus episode from season one, where Ufahamu and A World on the Move joined up to speak with author and activist Nanjala Nyabula. And we'll link to the Ufahamu Africa site in our show notes so you can check out their nearly 200 great episodes about life and politics on the African continent. We'll also link to work by Tendai Achume. And now, here's our conversation with Tendai. So thank you for having me. My name is Tendai Achume, and I'm a professor of law at UCLA School of Law. And my research focuses on international migration, refugees, displacement, and especially the role of international law in shaping the way that borders work and thinking about the way that colonialism and legacies of colonialism can continue to structure the way that migration and mobility work globally. 
And I also just ended my term as the UN Special Rapporteur of Contemporary Forms of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. Mm. The name is really long, it always takes me a while <laughs> to recall it. Absolutely, and, and we want to get into kind of some of the the work that you've been doing, Tendai, and in particular your current focus on um, kind of global governance of racism and xenophobia. So we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you think about global governance, mm -hmm. writ large, you know, in quotes, um, in general, and then specifically in relation to racism and xenophobia mm -hmm. in particular, and whether there are any bright spots that you see, you know, where are the realms of possibility and what, of course, what are the challenges that, that we're facing? So when I, when I speak about global governance of racism and xenophobia, that's really to call attention to the frameworks that exist at the international level, specifically within the United Nations, that apply to the problems of racism and xenophobia. And there are there's international law that applies to the problem of racism and xenophobia. Most of it is in the field of international human rights law. So you have treaties that prohibit um, racial discrimination and xenophobia as well. And so my work studies those treaties. But there's also what we think of as soft law mechanisms, so policy documents, frameworks, institutions, bodies that are all responsible for coordinating what the global approach to the problem of racism and xenophobia should be. And it's complicated because, as everybody knows, racism and xenophobia are really local. You know, race is very locally constructed, and even xenophobia, which is about foreignness, really depends on where you are in the world. At the same time, we also know that there are ways in which race has been constructed that are transnational. When we think about the history of the transatlantic slave trade, when we think about the history of colonialism, there are ways of experiencing race and foreignness that are transnational and global. And so one of the challenges of the global frameworks is having baselines that are applicable in really different contexts while also allowing room for local dynamics to shape what role law and policy play in in um, in how these problems are addressed. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of the job isn't just the policy makers. It's not just the states that are represented at the United Nations. It's also thinking about the movement actors and the civil society actors and the communities themselves who experienced who experience racism, xenophobia and related intolerance connecting with them to understand how global frameworks can advance the causes that they are advancing uh, locally, nationally, regionally. And this is a actually nice transition to the second part of your question, which is about bright spots. Mm -hmm. I think in my work as an independent expert within the UN system, the bright spots have really been looking at the really innovative and inspiring work that movement actors and even communities themselves are doing to advance racial justice, to push back against xenophobia in their local contexts. And I use this example often, but you might think about the racial justice uprisings of 2020 during the peak of the COVID pandemic, which began in the US, but really spread all over the world and I think resulted in a very different kind of conversation about how we should understand racial injustice, and that, to my mind, was driven by movement advocacy in many different parts of the world that has actually been going on for many, many years, but that came together in that moment. So when I think about bright spots, I think about the ways that policy at the global level really stands to be transformed by the insights of 
grassroots movements that are, are doing the work on a daily basis. Absolutely, that possibility of, of social movements and, and local activism shaping kind of the international landscape as, mm-hmm. as you see it. I was, I was going to ask you about the question of accountability when you were talking about the UN mechanisms, but maybe mm-hmm. this is also one answer to that question, that um, when you have global frameworks mm-hmm. for thinking about human rights mm-hmm. and questions of racial justice, how do we hold governments or international organizations to account? And the global Black Lives Matter movement and these, these uprisings are perhaps one source of inspiration for thinking about practices that that hold governments to account. I don't know if you wanted to say more about that. Sure, and I think accountability and even rule of law, those are concepts that are really complex and I think that in the realm of racial justice really interrogating what they can mean and how we think about accountability is really important. So if we mm-hmm. think specifically about the movement for black lives and the critique of law enforcement as kind of being characterized by systemic racism, Part of the critique there is that the traditional modes of accountability in liberal democracies, which are, you know, the police, the criminal justice system, are themselves infected by the problem Mm. they are trying to solve. Mm -hmm. So rather than it just being about greater enforcement of the law, which at least from a legal perspective, and because I'm a law professor, this is the perspective I go to when I think about accountability, we often think about the law being enforced by courts and police. That form of accountability, I think, is put under the microscope as not the the end-all and the be-all. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's part of the problem. And I think what you see in the global system and even what you saw in the the uprisings was a, a form of accountability that was about putting into the mainstream an account that says we have to rethink the legal frameworks themselves and we have to think about forms of accountability that are actually responsive to the communities that are impacted. And I see the global as allowing for a shifting in framing that means you can then go back to the local and say, okay, how are we going to remake our approach to law enforcement in ways that are responsive to this account that has been endorsed at a, at a global level? So I think accountability is a huge part of it. And what is exciting is how these encounters between, between kind of the local, the transnational and the global can even shift what accountability means mm. um, from a legal perspective as well. Mm. I, I really like that, you know, the multi-layered framework mm-hmm. and how each one can think about the role in accountability and its evolution. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, can, connecting that specifically to your recent role at the UN as Special Rapporteur on contemporary forms of racism and racial discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance, I believe you wrote in the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, and I was wondering if you could tell us about um, how you see the fight against racial discrimination Mm -hmm. as linked to sustainable development goals and and, kind of a just future. So I'll say a little bit about how I came to write that report Mm -hmm. and how my own thinking shifted in the process of doing so. So one of the things your audience might be interested in in knowing is that as Special Rapporteur, as an independent expert, part of the role is providing thematic reports to the United Nations where you bring to their attention an issue that you think they need to take on. And you have a limited number of thematic reports, and I have to be honest, the uh, the Agenda uh, 2030 for Sustainable Development was not on my list of approaches, in part because 
I've always been profoundly skeptical of the international approach to development yes. and its relationship to really addressing transnational inequality and injustice and we can talk about why I have that skepticism. Yes. So it was actually the Human Rights Council member states who insisted, you know, they were like, we want a report on this issue and I grudgingly did it. This is probably the first time that I'm publicly saying this. <laughs> but I'm really glad that I did because in looking at the, uh, the sustainable uh, development goals, which within the UN system I would say are the flagship program, policy program for coordinating the global approach to inequality, um, studying that framework, you see that issues to do with racial justice and racial equality are thoroughly marginalized in the most basic ways. And I use the comparison to gender, and this is not to say that the UN or the SDGs get gender right, there is a lot that requires change, but if you compare the approaches to the two, the way that data is collected, the ways that the, the agenda itself speaks to the issue of racial inequality as a global problem, entirely um, marginal. And so the conclusion of that report was actually to say we have a framework that can't name and address one of the dominant axes of inequality in, in, in this global system, and that's a weakness. And we have to have a way of bringing this into the picture. And Part of the drafting of that report was consultations with UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, entities like the World Bank, these big development actors to say, how are you thinking about what race is and what work it does globally and how your programs can reify inequalities within communities, right? So in the international system, how we think about racial inequality, it includes discrimination on the basis of ethnicity, national origin. It's a very broad um, framework. So even in countries, you know, say, pick a country that may not have a lot of racial diversity but has ethnic diversity, that is part of the analysis as well. But pushing those organizations to say, how are you thinking about ethnic inequality and other forms of inequality, but then also transnationally, how are you thinking about injustice, racial injustice in that framework? And so the goal of the report was to say, we cannot have an account of sustainability that does not incorporate a racial justice analysis. And I, I realize my answers are long, but I want to connect this to my final report in the UN, which was actually about um, climate justice and mm. thinking about ecological crisis. And that's another context where sustainability is really on the table and another context where the global approach has marginalized questions around racial injustice in ways that mean some of the most progressive initiatives, initiatives for even green transitions fail to account for the, the fact that the communities that bear the disproportionate burden of getting us to more sustainable uh, futures are racially marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. So sustainability for whom yes. and, at, and at whose cost, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And can I just follow up on that because I think it's so key. Um, how do you see a path forward um, you know, to, to move towards climate justice in a way that takes account of that vulnerability mm. and begins to address it? So I have been thinking more and more about what it means to build movements and knowledge across silos. Mm -hmm. And as academics, I think you feel this strongly as well. We all work in our disciplinary silos and, and I think a lot of movement advocacy also happens in silos and I think a lot of my work 
as special rapporteur was trying to have analyses that cross movement and disciplinary and policy making silos to say if you think you're an environmental rights person you have to be somebody who cares about racial justice you have to be somebody who cares about gender justice and you have to be somebody who cares about political economy because all of these things are deeply connected or if you're somebody who understands yourself as an immigrants rights activist you have to be thinking about climate you have to be thinking about racial justice you have to be thinking about gender justice because Mm -hmm the systems that, and the structures that we're pushing up against require this kind of cross-cutting, intersectional um, approach. Mm-hmm. And what gives me hope? I was just um, at a meeting with some students, and, and I think a lot about my students and the, their approach to mobilizing and advocacy. What gives me hope is movement advocacy that is really pushing back against Mm -hmm. silos that have tried to keep issues in separate categories that I think are a huge part of the problem. Yes, exactly. Right. There's a reason why the silos are there. Exactly. Reinforced. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. What you're saying is reminding me, too, of how striking it is to me still that while I think, thanks in part to movement activists, there's increasing acceptance of the idea that, for example, migrant rights and racial justice are inextricably linked as issues, but that's actually relatively new as an approach within the academy. I mean, some people have been doing work on that. I don't want to exclude people who have worked on that for a long time, but as a sort of more broadly accepted approach to how we think about migration and rights, um, it is striking that it's, it's taken us until now to put those things in in real conversation. It is so striking. And I think the migration context, it's inc- it's, it's so profound. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely in the academy. So I'm an international lawyer who studies international migration. And it has been a journey to try and bring conversations around racial justice into the international migration law space. And it's happening more and it's exciting to see more people do it. But those frames have been kept really separate mm-hmm. and the legal regimes do that as well. Mm-hmm. So treaties that apply to racial discrimination actually have carve-outs that say this isn't about issues to do with non-citizens and that's not that's not by accident, right? UN member states, including the most powerful and former colonial powers have basically structured the law in ways that makes it difficult for even those of us who are interested from a disciplinary perspective in making these connections. There are gaps that are hard. And I've come to think that it's because immigration law, citizen, you know, the citizen-non-citizen distinction is where liberal democracies go to do things they cannot do within their communities, you know, so there's a long conversation we could Mm. have about that. But I think it also has implications in terms of there was a global compact on migration that was adopted in 2018. And I remember being in conversations around those negotiations. And part of what civil society actors were trying to do, part of what my mandate was trying to do was convince UN member states that issues to do with racism and xenophobia had to be at the center of that sort of agreement because they're not fringe. And as you say, I think even in movement advocacy, you see the silos and it's only recently that there have been efforts to break those silos down. And it's not to say that that breaking down of the silos work is easy. You know, I think there Mm. are very difficult conversations to be had right here in the United States, for example, when you think about the rights of immigrants, you think about the rights of racially marginalized groups, including people who aren't of an immigrant background. And then you think about Native Americans and their experiences 
in what is a settler colony and what it means to try and reconcile the various rights claims that different groups legitimately have. I think we can't paper over the difficult work that is required to break down the silos. Mm -hmm. But to my mind, that is the work. That Mm -hmm. is really, really the work. And it is heartening to think about how, you know, even in academic spaces, these conversations are happening Mm. more. Um, And one thing I feel compelled to say is that I think my domestic immigration law scholars have been thinking a lot about race and migration together. So they've been doing that work, but they've been thinking about it only within the borders of the US. And Mm -hmm. that's another thing, you know, you have to have, Mm -hmm. I think, transnational and international conversations. It can't just be about what's happening. Uh, This is is part of what you bring to the table through, I'm thinking about two articles in in particular that you've written on racial borders and Mm -hmm. migration as decolonization, um, which I actually got to teach in a migrations course and they resonate with students in really incredible ways and I think turn our attention to these intersecting issues um, in ways that are really important. So I wondered if you could say a little bit more about the place. I mean, we're talking about the entanglements of migration and race Mm. and racial justice. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how you see the place of colonialism in this sort of set of dynamics. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I want to mark both colonialism and imperialism, and, and those things are related, but obviously are not the mm-hmm. same thing and when we're thinking about borders in particular a lot of my work has focused on how colonialism has shaped the way that border regimes works and, and continues to shape who's included and who is excluded in really profound ways you know I focus on the relationship for example between um, the European Union and the African continent and the long history of immigration policies that basically immobilize black Africans while permitting people of European descent permissions to move across the continent and even within Europe that persist to the present Mm -hmm. in ways that require a racial justice account of visa policies that on their face seem really neutral. You know, we think of racism and immigration as being about, you know, Trump who comes out and says, you know, explicitly racist things, but Mm -hmm. we have visa regimes that effectively pattern the world on a racial basis with a genealogy that we can see comes directly out of colonialism. But I mention imperialism because you look at a country like the US and the US has a colonial, it's a settler colony and also has had colonies of its own for sure, Mm -hmm. but its imperial domination has been through informal empire, through military occupations that don't necessarily result in the US kind of taking political leadership and also Mm -hmm. through economic intervention, through US corporations. Mm -hmm. So you think about Central America right now and the discourse around Central American migration which places Central Americans as sort of these people outside of the US who are coming here and flooding our immigration system. When you look at the causes of Central American displacement, the US is leading among them, right? So so in my work, I've argued that the kind of imperial domination that the US exerts over a place like Central America actually makes it so that Central Americans have legitimate claims to the US political and territorial space on account of the fact that their self-determination is so dramatically curtailed by the U.S. And, you know, I was reading an article recently that was talking about the U.S., um, the Biden administration's root causes strategy, which is about Mm. addressing root causes of migration. And they say one of the things they're going to do is increase corporate intervention into Central America to prevent 
you know, to help stem migration when it's known that actually corporate intervention into the region has been one of the most destabilizing mm. um, causes of displacement in the in the first place. So anyway, I think it's why, even if all you care about is what's happening at the U.S. southern border, your gaze can't end at the territorial border. You have to sort of see where the U.S. as a political and economic force is projecting itself and understand the internal fights as being about also the projection of U.S. imperial domination everywhere else in the world. And we could talk about something similar also in the EU-Africa context, right, with the same conversations around root causes and quote-unquote development as a possible solution to the quote-unquote problem of migration. Absolutely. And then you see what the EU is doing even just to internal African borders, Mm -hmm. you know, but the African continent and the African Union is a complex regional body as well. I don't want to paint it out to be some, you know, angelic body. We have governance issues in in on the African continent, as does every other continent, by the way. So mm-hmm. this is not a pathologizing sure. Sure, sure. Right? governance issues <laughs> uh, everywhere. Everybody has has them. But when you look at some of the ways that the African Union and even the sub-regional groups like the Southern African Development Community, if you go back to their founding documents, they have accounts of the of the continent that speak to to just freer regimes of mobility mm-hmm. that aren't just rooted, I don't think, in a kind of neoliberal open borders push, but that actually resonate with the way that mobility and migration has historically operated mm-hmm. on the African continent. You know, I'm from Zambia and Zimbabwe and my family's on both sides. I have ancestors from across the region of Southern Africa because mobility has always been mm-hmm. Um, a, a way that that people have lived, but you look at what the EU is doing, which is hardening national borders in an attempt to prevent Africans from reaching Europe and going kind of further and further into the continent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's an externalization of an externalization of European borders that maps over, kind of overlaps with national borders that are themselves a product of the European colonial project. You know, you think about what we call Zambia and what we call Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. and the way that those regions were structured politically before they became named those things. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, we could be here forever yeah. unpacking that. But <laughs> um, I think it's really true. And what breaks my heart is that, you know, when I studied international law, when I studied migration, and even now when I open textbooks that are about these legal frameworks on the continent, these stories just aren't there, right? So how are we teaching people to understand what borders are and what work they do? And 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 that has to be a crucial piece of how we would move to frameworks that work better. And you know, it ties so directly to the concept of what we think of as citizenship. Absolutely. Right? Because the borders determine, you know, the citizenship and the and the routes to becoming citizens. And then how we think about that in relationship to nationalism, yes. ideas of belonging. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit because um, these different conceptions about nationalism and citizenship are in some ways the root of promise and in an inclusive nature of citizenship, or inclusive pathways to citizenship. They're also the root of much peril for mm-hmm. these contested um, borders and boundaries that we're discussing. And you wrote for the UN, racial discrimination in the context of laws, policies, and practices concerning citizenship, nationality, and immigration. Mm. And so here I wanted to ask you a little bit about 
the concept of inclusive nationalism and citizenship laws um, it, and social policy and practice that could lead in that direction, right? How do you think about immigration laws, citizenship mm -hmm. laws as offering a route into civic conceptions of the nation that may be based on principles of belonging, mm -hmm. of, of um, liberty or other, mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, conceptions of, of how we organize and what connects us? Um, so, and, and how do you see the current practice and context of laws and policies um, evolving in, mm -hmm. in the years ahead. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's a really, <laughs> I know. It's, and it's, it's I think it touches on on so much that is interesting. I'll try and be responsive, and you can definitely push me on anything that I miss out on. But you know, citizenship and nationality. There, there's so many ways you can think about both of those concepts, and I know that in my own mind, I've gone through various iterations and. And even now, my sense of them is not necessarily stable in the sense that as a lawyer, I am interested in the ways in which existing legal frameworks around citizenship and nationality can be made more just. And that report that you mentioned for, to the UN was exactly about that. And it was about the really basic ways in which citizenship and immigration laws are being deployed all over the world to basically entrench ethno-nationalist forms of exclusion. We know what that looked like in the US um, under the Trump administration. Some of those dynamics continue under the Biden administration. But you can think about a country like India, where the supremacist, the kind of Hindu nationalist project there is very different from the one that you see in the US, but you've seen citizenship stripping mm. and efforts to exclude um, certain ethnic and religious groups from citizenship in ways that I think can at least be mitigated under existing laws. So that's one mode in which I engage this question of citizenship and nationality is thinking about how both institutions can be more inclusive and more legitimately reflect the kinds of economic, social and cultural belonging that actually pattern people's lives. I think that there is a project there that is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. But when you think about, at another, in another register, when you think about both citizenship and even the nation as a category, you know, the history of both of those concepts and institutions are histories that have had inherently exclusionary projects built into them. And one of the things I've been interested in is, you know, what would it mean to rethink the relationship between political community and territory mm -hmm. in ways that don't keep us stuck within these institutions, which, you know, the nation and even citizenship, without ceding too much, to me, come out of Western traditions. And mm -hmm. it's not, and, and not, not even Western traditions for all time, right? Mm -hmm. it's, if you look at the history even of what we think of like as the Western canon, there are other modes and even what citizenship and the nation have meant have shifted mm -hmm. really dramatically in ways that I think would, would result in periods that would make what we do now seem a little bit unrecognizable, you know, in terms of how mm -hmm. citizenship and, national, and nationality work. But to come back to Southern Africa, um, I wrote an article with the co-author Tamara last where part of the research we were doing in that piece was thinking about how political communities in um, the region that we call Southern Africa now what kinds of institutions did they use to basically manage 
political belonging, relationship to territory and mobility. And there were different kinds of, of ways of dealing with those problems. There were different kinds of institutional technologies that meant, for example, that allegiance mattered more than, say, ethnicity sometimes in determining who you belonged to and what kinds of rights or entitlements you had. So I think it is really urgent in a time where I think both citizenship and nationality are so fraught, to my mind, are so embedded in a particular sort of racial and kind of, I want to put capitalism on the table as well, because I think we we have to uh, put it on the table. There's a way in which these categories right now are operating and doing a kind of work that I think reproduces injustice in really profound ways that we have to be looking at diverse and outside of the, the usual suspect traditions for thinking about how we create political and legal institutions that allow us to live in, in more interconnected ways. So this is a really perhaps abstract way of responding to your question, but I think both citizenship and nationality require really deep interrogation, in part because on their face they just seem so neutral and of course valuable. You know, like who wouldn't why would citizenship be bad? Why mm-hmm. would the nation be bad when they both <laughs> carry with them legal and political arrangements that are truly terrifying. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was wondering, for our Ufahamu Africa listeners, Mm. if you can talk a little bit about how you see this playing out kind of within Africa, across the continent, but then also, as you're mentioning, in these cross-regional, transnational forums. So I keep, I I think a lot about Southern Africa, surprisingly, because that's where I'm from, but I think some of these questions obviously have resonance in other parts of the continent as well. Um, But if you look at South Africa right now, which is actually where I began my legal career, I was a a human rights lawyer representing refugees and asylum seekers, and citizenship for South Africans is of course, especially for black South Africans, is of course a really significant gain given the history of apartheid and the exclusion of black Africans from citizenship in the territory to which they were indigenous. But in the present, you see citizenship being mobilized in ways that um, result in violent xenophobic um, responses, in particular to other black Africans and to non-white Um, refugees and migrants in South Africa. And you might think about the racialization of xenophobic backlash in South Africa that doesn't seem to necessarily mobilize the same kind of antipathy towards what you might describe as white corporate power, Mm -hmm. which is still including foreign, white foreign corporate power. Mm -hmm. So just that, I think, is something that brings the whole capitalism frame into into the conversation again. But if you look at South Africa and yeah, the ways in which citizenship is being mobilized to exclude groups actually with whom South Africans have been deeply interconnected to politically, economically, culturally, mm-hmm. it to me speaks of the limits and the dangers of relying on categories that may not be suited for the project of living the kind of interconnected lives that are the reality in um, Southern Africa. And, you know, I think there can be ways of talking about xenophobic violence in South Africa that really 
trivializes or kind of paints out as these really, you know, bad actors who are going after foreigners or that tells a different story, which is just, this is about economic precarity and people are in contestation. But I will highlight that one of the things that is also clear is that they are political actors who are basically entrepreneurs of divisive politics that I think have done a really good job of making the citizen-non-citizen distinction Mm -hmm. be the primary way that many people understand the precarity of their lives. And I think it's it's a false, that division is not the one that is actually doing the most work, but the narrative really sinks in. So I think it's really difficult to think about how we move out of it and how we build the kinds of political consciousness and even just understanding of the region and its histories mm-hmm. that shakes that up. And I've singled out South Africa in part because it's like the powerhouse in the mm-hmm. region, economically, mm-hmm. politically. But you see these dynamics playing out in other parts of the region as well. I mentioned Zambia, where I go home regularly and you start seeing these discourses around foreigners, which are not new. There's been previous situations where the kind of discourses around foreigners Mm -hmm. are mobilized. But again, you look at the people who are being named as foreigners and you think to yourself, these are people who have always moved through these regions as well. (laughs) And and what work is that citizen-non-citizen distinction doing? And then in a place like Zambia and other parts of the the continent, I think also thinking about... um, Chinese empire and thinking about how that is also shifting questions around belonging and not belonging citizen and non-citizen and also producing a kind of rhetoric that often I think is xenophobic, right? So, so anyway, it's, it's very complicated, but these dynamics, I think, are playing themselves out in related and unrelated ways to other parts of, of the world as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And even when you're, you know, you're describing the, the kind of the South African case and example, you know, the, the context that you play with the political and economic entrepreneurs and the way in which that keeps people from recognizing a kind of shared vulnerability, yeah. uh, it, it absolutely translates to where we're sitting right now absolutely. in the United States, you know, and, and across so many regions. So it's just yeah. very, very powerful patterns that you can pull from a particular yeah example yeah no it's i i was really disturbed and and just not in terms of kind of the transnational networks and because i tend to analyze things transnationally you know it's like when you're a hammer everything's a nail i i want to own that particular (laughs) problem but one of the things that i found stunning in my rapporteurship is even just thinking about how especially with right-wing groups there is a lot of transnational mobilization of the Uh same kinds of rhetoric. So seeing QAnon conspiracy theories popping up in South Africa and doing work there, it's just like, what what is this world that we are living in where we're so connected in these ways? So that even when we see similar patterns, sometimes it's because it's coordinated or there are conversations taking place among the groups, I think, that are bringing this kind of instability and this kind of analysis. It's and I saw this in other parts of the world as, as well, where you see neo-Nazi rhetoric popping up in places where it's just not even clear what the relationship is to the origins of neo-Nazi ideology. But it's like these things travel and yes, yes. it's quite stunning. And they, in one way or another, help people in different contexts appeal to power in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's. The case, and it's you know I think we are in a time where there 
and I think the COVID pandemic only made this worse, where there are very real reasons for people to feel insecure and to, to be experiencing precarity. You know, I think the economic um, fallout of the pandemic and even just of the way that our global economy is structured means that many people are living in the kind of precarity that means that some of these ideologies, discourses, and narratives can resonate in, mm-hmm. in, in ways that have yeah, mm-hmm. really terrifying outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't asked you about or anything you haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to bring to the table? Mm-hmm. So I, ha- I decided you, you may, you can edit this out if you decide. Yeah. <laughs> but I've been thinking about how there is something about migration and there's something about immigrants and discourses about foreigners that really allows political actors to consolidate authoritarian measures even in societies that otherwise wouldn't tolerate them Mm -hmm. and so if you think about the fear of immigration and the way that it is mobilized to um, really advocate for stronger border enforcement surveillance technologies all of these sorts of things that then end up being um, used on border populations, right? Things that are implemented at the border never stay at the border. So DNA collect connection, collection right. of unauthorized immigrants is just a step away from DNA connections, collection of people who are incarcerated to then, mm-hmm. you know, broader populations. And this may have a flavor of kind of conspiracy theory, but it's it's not. There's people who are tracking the way that surveillance technologies that are mobilized first in the in the border enforcement context end up being deployed so that people who are protesting against a particular regime find themselves surveilled and then kind of punished mm-hmm. in ways that wouldn't have been possible before. So anyway, just thinking about how how uh, dangerous that is, that issues around migration and issues to do with immigrants can be this political resource that is mobilized to entrench authoritarian politics in a time when I think threat of authoritarianism, even in so-called liberal democracies, I think is really high, is a reason to my mind that issues to do with immigration and the border should be viewed by everybody as really important and not just as affecting the migrants and the refugees who are moving. This is a fairly abstract point, and I don't know where it fits in the conversation, but it is definitely something that has been on my mind. I think it's racial borders that you start with the Um, story of the Aquarius and I think that's so this ship that um, the Italian government held at bay one of the first um, and this has now become a normalized practice so a ship holding migrants and we you know probably mostly asylum seekers um, who were kept out mostly from um, from countries in West Africa the Sahel um, the Horn of Africa you know kept out of European spaces violating international law um, and I, I love your point because I think it is easy to think about that border space, this sort of vast amorphous sea yes. as not pertaining to people in Europe. Exactly. But I think you can directly relate that violent policing of bodies to the different forms of, um, of the control of, you, you're talking about surveillance. We could also relate it, I think, to what happens with, then with what governments are permitted to do in terms of gender issues and things absolutely. like that. There's so much connection, and we see that happening in places like Italy, for absolutely, example. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it just, 
and and one of the things about it that's hard is that I there can be a way of thinking of migration issues and their governance and challenges around racism and xenophobia as being especially about a threat from kind of ethno-nationalist politics only. Mm-hmm. But I think what you see across the political spectrum is a willingness to have really harsh policies that exist at the border. And it, it makes it, I think it puts immigrants' rights group and movements who are pushing for border justice in a very difficult position because then the challenge becomes... How, yeah, what would it mean to win this battle when politics across the spectrum seem comfortable with this kind of right. um, division? And perhaps one of the ways of overcoming that is getting people to understand that these issues aren't just about what's happening at the border. They can, mm-hmm. they can affect, the, and they do affect the entire society. Mm-hmm. When you begin to use practices, in any case, that are dehumanizing, when you sharpen the edges of coercion coercion and the state apparatus to repress humans. Those practices continue to shape the nature of the state and everyone who lives within it and beyond its borders. Absolutely. And in most of these societies, immigrant labor, including unauthorized labor, is such a, it's such a, piece of the economies that are then acting as though those people are just coming to to, to be a burden, exactly. you know? And so you, so it's interesting here in the U.S. right now, they, it does seem to me like there are parallel um, debates taking place. One is the debate that's talking about how refugees, asylum seekers, and people who are being granted status are filling jobs that are urgently needed in factories and all of these sorts of places. And at the same time, those same groups are being framed as, you know, they are coming to put pressure on our welfare system, whatever the case might be. And neither story, I think, is exactly right. And of course, the actual story is one that is really complicated, but it it cautions against buying too easily into many of the narratives, I think, that have as the solution more vicious borders. Exactly, exactly. So Tina, I wanted to kind of wrap up by taking your challenge and kind of reinforcing your message to us about what are more capacious ways that we can think beyond the existing citizenship regimes yeah. and relationship to nationality and um, and being attentive to the connections between harsh and repressive yeah. uh, border practices and the ways in which we are all interconnected at a transnational level, to your point, and at a very local level, to the ways in which uh, the delegitimization of of, humanity and rights is an issue for for all of us that connects us. Absolutely. Okay, so there's two things I want to say. One is a little bit niche, but because I know that your audience includes academics and graduate students, I think that it has never been more urgent for everybody, irrespective of what you are studying, to understand how the borders of the nation that you are in are not going to exhaust the analysis of how power is being shaped even just within those territorial borders. And I think the project becomes overcoming what has been described as methodological nationalism mm-hmm. in, in a very profound way. So, so really beginning to shift how we produce knowledge that masks interconnection, including interconnection that 
privileges certain groups over others in pretty systemic ways. I think that's that's something that mm-hmm. I think is really important. And I think there's an there's an analogy or an analog even for people who aren't academics mm-hmm. and who are interested in living more ethical lives and, and kind of you know, wanting to be good to the planet and to everybody around. And I think that also is about the kind of consciousness that means that, you know, you're thinking, for example, about the difference between drinking water from a water from a plastic water bottle versus kind of trying to shift the, the decisions that you're making on a on a level. And I think it's always hard to say something that can resonate across the many different contexts and realities that people are living, you know? And we are living in such different worlds, not just in terms of geography. You know, we're recording this in Ithaca, Mm -hmm. New York. Your listeners are in many different places that are not even Ithaca, you know? But even here in Ithaca, what it means to be on the Cornell campus and what it means to be five minutes away and, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody is in a really different situation. And some people are on such the extreme end of the inequalities that the kind of advice I'm giving is, is almost a, a kind of insulting because they are living the experience of the thing that I'm trying to ask more people to have um, awareness of. Um, but so I, I want to have humility about even that kind of recommendation to say that we are all living really different kinds of lives and perhaps it is the case that those of us whose lives are the most privileged in some ways also then carry the burden of these kinds of interrogations because the bubbles we live in can make some of this stuff really um, hard. Thanks for listening to Migrations, A World on the Move, a podcast by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and with the hashtag Cornell Migrations. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migrations Postdoc at the Mario Anaudi Center for International Studies, and produced by Megan Dement. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize Cayuga Nation sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is Basically Really by Steve Fawcett. Migrations, A World on the Move is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and